as we continue today, um, oh, there we go, we have our memory verse for the month of April. We have another week yet before we're supposed to have it memorized, so we can practice it again today together. Let's say it. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Exodus 29, 46. That I might dwell among them. And that is exactly what we are going to be focusing on today. The presence of the Lord, God, with us. So a little activity for us to hold on to and to help anchor it in. But you're all going to have to help me participate in it. All right. So we have four sections here in the congregation. So these two sections over here, you are going to be... Emmanuel. So say, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Let's do it again. Emmanuel. Good. These two sections over here, you are God with us. Let's say it. Ready? God with us. Good. Okay. So when I point over here, what are we going to hear? Emmanuel. And when I point over here, what are we going to hear? All right. Let's try it. Here we go. Ready? All right, very good. I hope we lock that in and hold on to it because it is a major, major theme in the book of Exodus. God with his people. Oh, and how comforting and how hopeful and what a needed message it is for the people of God living here today. It's not only a message, it's also an action that God prioritized as he was calling the Hebrew people together to form them into the nation of Israel. In the messiness and in the chaos and the uncertainty and the hostility of the wilderness, it is important for God's people to know, to see, and to experience that he is with us. And while camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, the presence of God was lit as a consuming fire among the mountaintop. It was visible. The people could see its effects. They could feel, smell, maybe even taste the smoke as it was heavy and hovering over the mountain. And in the text we are going to reflect on and consider this morning, God is going to move into the neighborhood of the wilderness with his people. Exodus 25 through 40, they form one literary unit within this book. Now, we've been moving through the book in three movements. We started uh, the first movement uh, with redemption. And this movement, we've been focused on reformation. And this is our last week in the second movement. Next week, we begin our third and final movement through the book, which will focus on restoration. Today we're going to spend the majority of our time in chapters 25 to 31. God desires to 
dwell with his kingdom of priests. He will not leave them. He will not forsake them. He will not let them fend for themselves in the wild and unruly unknowns of wilderness life. The tabernacle instructions, I don't know how many of you are in the habit of trying to read through the Bible or portions of the Bible every year, but if you're committed to doing that, oftentimes the section of the Bible that we're in today is one of those sections that becomes an obstacle to our goal. So for some of you, it's the narratives, right? We get to the names and we're like, no, can't even pronounce half of these. But for others... Portions of the scripture that we're reading today, this tabernacle and the instructions and the things that are going on here in the wilderness, for some of us, this becomes a place where it's a little bit of an obstacle for us. But it's important to remember God's abiding presence and the detail and the care with which he takes to set it up. It shows us how much he prioritizes it. And these portions of scripture, they should captivate us and stir our imagination towards attitudes and behaviors of peace and comfort and faith, hope and love. Because friends, church, this is our wilderness. And today we take a literary and imaginary tour through the design plans of God's mobile tabernacle in the wilderness. And as we do, we're going to seek to give insight to the following three questions. First, what can this space communicate to us about the nature of God? What can we learn about God by making observations about the space? And how does the design of the tabernacle reveal to us God's love for his people? And then finally, why should this portion of Exodus still captivate And motivate the church today. I want you to think about this friends. The God who created the universe. The very one who called and formed the people of Israel into a nation. The God who gave his son and has sent his spirit. The God who raised Jesus from the dead. The God who is going to come again. This God wants to dwell In a visible, personal, and intimate way with us. Then, now, and forever. If you have your Bibles, you want to take them and turn them to Exodus chapter 25. We're going to begin there today by looking at the first 15 verses of chapter 25. And before we read, let's pray. God, you are amazing You're incredible. We could spend years, decades up here trying to unpack your greatness and your beauty. And we would only cover a drop in the ocean. We cannot fathom or imagine how amazing you are. And in all of your glory and all of your goodness, you've taught us through your word that you desire to be with us. Lord, there is so much in this world that is cause for fear, for consternation, for weeping, bitterness, anxiety. Lord, you do not leave us on our own. You're here each step of the way. 
through the mountaintops that you take us on and into the valleys where you descend with us. You walk with us and your presence is real. It's a tangible thing because you, God, are real. We can sense it. We can experience it. We can hold on and know and cling because you are with us. We thank you for the text that we're going to study today that reveals these realities and the care that you took to be with your people. And we pray that you'd use your word to change us, transform us, renew us, refresh us, and send us into our communities as salt and light, giving hope and proclaiming the wonderful news that the God of the universe is not far off. He is near. You are here. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus 25, 1-15. The Lord spoke to Moses. Tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. From every person motivated by a willing heart, you are to receive my offering. This is the offering you are to accept from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for fragrant incense, onyx stones, and other gems to be set in the ephod and in the breastpiece. Let them make for me a sanctuary so that I may live among them. According to all that I am showing you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishes, you must make it exactly so. They are to make an ark of acacia wood. Its length is to be 45 inches. Its width, 27 inches. Its height, 27 inches. You are to overlay it with pure gold, both inside and outside. You must overlay it. And you are to make a surrounding border of gold over it. You are to cast four gold rings for it and Put them on its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. You are to make poles of acacia wood. Overlay them with gold and put the poles into the rings at the side of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. The poles must remain in the rings of the ark. They must not be removed from it. You are to put into the ark of the testimony all that I will give to you. That I may live among them. Now once again, we've mentioned this before with the book of Exodus. The tones of Genesis that are all throughout it. It is important for us to grab hold of an understanding that in this portion, 25 to 40, specifically today, 25 to 31, once again, we are presented with intentional literary cues that are meant to move our minds and our hearts back into the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2. One way we see this from the very outset of this section is that God is speaking. And just as there were seven different and distinct days in the creation narrative, in chapters 25 to 31, the Lord is going to give distinct instruction to Moses, speaking directly to him on seven different occasions. Several different names are going to be used. 
for the space that is being created. Just as we call this space, some of us refer to it as a sanctuary, some of us call it an auditorium, some of us say the church, some of us say a family life center. The space that God is ordering in these chapters is going to be referred to as a tabernacle, a dwelling place, a sanctuary, a tent of meaning. And God is seeking voluntary gifts from the community for the construction of this space. As one biblical scholar has noted, like all of the acts of true worship, the building would not be constructed as motivated by compulsion, but rather as motivated by love. And we know from multiple places in the book of Hebrews that the furnishings of the temple were symbolic or images of greater things that were to come. We see this over and over again. We can explore just a few of the texts in Hebrews. There's four of them up here before you uh, this morning, and I'll kind of rotate through them. You can see chapter 9, 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. And again, in In verse 23 and 24 of chapter 9, it was a symbol or an image of things greater to come. Within the sanctuary, within the tabernacle then, there were three specific images that aim us or point us to the person or the work of Christ. Those images are before us. The first in verses 10 to 22, nestled on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, was something that was known as a mercy seat. For the Israelites, the mercy seat would be a temporary symbol of what Messiah would permanently be for all the people. It is a space where God is satisfied. Look at verse 22. Of Exodus 25, in reference to the mercy seat on the ark, I will meet with you there. And from above the atonement lid, from between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will command for you, the Israelites. Biblical scholar F.B. Meyer said the following regarding the mercy seat. He said, quote, it is mercy... A sweet word, a seat of mercy, baptized in mercy, from which mercy flows forth, not wrath, not judgment, not indignation, but mercy is pouring forth from its original fountain in the heart of God. Isn't that beautiful? End quote. The second symbol or image then within the tabernacle we find in verses 23 to 30. It introduces us to this table of showbread or the table of presents. Take a look at verse 23. You are to make a table of acacia wood. Verse 24, overlay it with pure gold. Verse 25, you are to make a surrounding frame for it. Then 26, four rings of gold. Jump down to verse 29. You're to make its plates, its ladles, its pitchers, and its bowls to be used in pouring out offerings. You're to make them of pure gold. You are to set the bread of presence on the table before me continually. This was to be 
12 loaves of bread. Each loaf was to represent one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were to image or to help the people remember how God had provided for them in the wilderness with the manna. Now jump forward into the New Testament and Jesus comes and he says, I am the bread of what? The bread of life. The spiritual food that eternally satisfies. One scholar noted this, the table of presence also symbolizes the work of Jesus in his church as the church stands continually in the presence of Christ. End quote. And then finally, a third image in chapter 25, verses 31 to 40, the lampstand. Jesus is what? The light of the, the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, continually shining in the darkness. Look at verse 31. You are to make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand's to be made of hammered metal. Its base and its shaft, its cups, its buds and its blossoms are to be from the same place. And church, the church he is building, friends, we are fueled by the oil of the Holy Spirit so that we might shine as light and have effect in the world, this world that God has planted us in. God's people, they are to represent God's nature in the world. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In the book of Revelations, we find seven churches, each church representing one of the seven arms of the lampstand. Again, imagery that God is with his people, but he's with them in accordance to his nature and by his own intention and design. He meets with his people and there at the center of the tabernacle exists a place that perpetually grounds us on his gracious, abundant provision and on our persistently present need. In chapter 26, we take time to just focus on the veil. But before we do, we want to note that there's a pattern for God's instruction here in 25 to 31 that moves us from inside or from outside to inside. This is God's space. It belongs to him. And as worshipers of God, we move from the outside inward. We draw near only as we are called and directed by God. And in the Old Testament, the people could only draw so close before they were met with a barrier, a veil. A marker that separated them from entering the holiest of spaces that was reserved only for a special order of priests. One day, Jesus changed this reality once and for all. And he made a way for all of us to fully draw near with equal access to the Father through his work. Look at Exodus 26, verses 31 to 35 with me as we rehearse the veil. You are to make a special curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine twisted linen. It is to be made with cherubim, the work of an artistic designer. You are to hang it with gold hooks on 
four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold, set in four silver basings. You're to hang this curtain under the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the curtain. The curtain will make a division for you between the holy place and the most holy place. You are to put the atonement lid on the ark of the testimony in the holy place. You are to put the table outside the curtain and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. You are to place the table on the north side. And I want you to reflect with me in two New Testament passages. Matthew 27. Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And just then what happened? The curtain was torn. And again in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Friends, Church, Jesus has made a way for us to participate in the glory of God's presence without fear of division or separation from him. We now enter through the blood of the Lamb. We have access to enter confidently and boldly the holiest of spaces to commune with God. There are no places anymore in these buildings where you can't go. Even that little baptism thing up there behind there. If you want to go up there and visit that, you're all welcome. Go ahead. There's not much to look at back there, I promise. But there's no more, any, there's no more spaces where only a certain group of privileged people are able to go. Jesus, he destroyed that curtain. It was torn. There was blood. He allowed the free entry for all people. It's a beautiful thing. We can all commune with God. Every once in a while in school, I'll be talking to somebody about something, and they know what I do for a living, and they'll say, oh, well, you have a, you have a, a, a better or a quicker landline to the big guy than I do. <laughs> That's not how it works. Sometimes I wish. <laughs> no, if you know Jesus, we all have equal He's he, he going to pick up the phone. <laughs> he's not going to let you ring six, seven times. He's not going to look at the caller ID and say, oh, it's Tony again. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> That's not how he operates. We all have equal access to the Father. The sacrifice of Jesus, he did that for us. And as we worship God and and we participate in the things of God. We're reminded that there are specific postures and activities that true worshipers should be committed to living and practicing. The sacrifice is still relevant today. And it looks much different than it did in the Old Testament today. The sacrifice is our bodies. Romans 12, offer your bodies as what? A living sacrifice. Broken and poured out. Offered to God. Laid on the altar. So it should not surprise us that as we move to the courtyard in chapter 27, that one of the first things that we run into in the courtyard in verses 1 to 8 is an altar. Look at the beginning of chapter 27. You are to make 
the altar of acacia wood. And then it goes into describing what it is to look like. In verse 8, you are to make the altar hollow out of boards, just as it was shown to you on the mountain. So they must make it. Church, the altar stood immediately inside the entrance to the court. It's Symbolic location in the tabernacle design reminds us that there is a sacrifice that lies at the heart of the relationship between God and humanity. And then as you move past the altar, you move into the courtyard in verses 9 to 19 of chapter 27. And in the courtyard, church, we can find much in common with the courtyard because perhaps it's the courtyard that reminds us the most of the types of activities that take place today within our physical church building. Sacrifices are made. Choirs sing. Believers reflect and pray and praise God together. There's confession. There's repentance and forgiveness of sins. God meets with us in a special way, in a unique way in this place. And along the way in these spaces, there were people who were designated to lead and guide and direct these activities. And they were known as priests. And so chapter 27 to 29 begin to unpack much about the priest. And just as today we might see elders and pastors roaming the church in the foyer or the sanctuary or the common spaces, the people of Israel would have had priests that they would have seen who would have guided and directed the ministries that were taking place within the tabernacle. And as God initiates and sets up his tabernacle, he's setting apart a specific group of Israelites from Aaron's sons to serve him. Look at chapter 29. Flip over to there. Verse 44. I want to look at this and talk a little bit about the priests. They were a part of this tabernacle design. The tabernacle could not function properly without the position of the priest. That's how God had ordered it. So as you go to Exodus 29, look down at verse 44. It's important for us to recognize that he's setting apart as holy a space and a people to function within that space. So I will set apart as holy the tent of meeting and the altar. I will set apart as holy Aaron and his sons that they may minister as priests to me. And and if we're just going to do a broad overview, which is really all we have time for today, on the roles or responsibilities of the priest, I identified five primary roles here within these chapters. First, the priests were responsible to maintain the tabernacle's holy space. They had to keep it holy. There were things that they had to do. But they also had to maintain the tabernacle's common spaces, trimming the wicks, Ordering, making sure that that everything had enough oil so that the lights were burning. Some of the lights were never to go out. They had to make sure that they kept those lamps lit at all times. Maintenancing, managing, changing the bread on the table, making sure it wasn't going stale or getting moldy. Right? All these things. When I was beginning and, and early on in ministry, we had some men like this in my first congregation. I remember them. They'd come in every morning. We have some men like that here that still do that today. They come in very early every morning and they order things. They kind of maintain the common spaces and set up the rooms and make it so that ministry can happen fluidly and things can function well, move, move along in an efficient manner. The priests were also to take an appraisal. 
of the people and their sacrifices, making sure the sacrifices that were being brought were up to the standard that was demanded or required in the law, making sure that, that the people that were coming didn't have any kind of illnesses or diseases. They needed to care, care for the lepers. They needed to, to take care of the things that had been dedicated to the temple. The priests were to teach, they were to counsel, and they were to care for the people. Uh, they, they were to communicate the Mosaic law to the congregation. And they were also supposed to, in a sensitive way, discern uh, and seek spiritual wisdom in decision making, especially as it pertained to difficult cases among the people. If you want to look a little bit further into that, uh, study the book of Leviticus, chapters 11 to 27. It goes into further detail into how the priests kind of ordered and, and did some of the decision making and some of the roles and responsibilities that they wore. But back then, man, the priests, they really had to dress for the part. I'm kind of glad we're not held to that standard anymore today. Or maybe we are in some ways, I don't know. But, the, but they had to get gussied up. That's not a word we use anymore, is it? They, 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 wore, they wore an ephod, I had a big old head garment, and, and they had a breastplate. Look at, look at chapter 28, and we won't read all of it, but, but look at verse 15 of chapter 28. Look, some of the elaborate things that they had to wear, and some of them were purposeful. The breastplate that they were to wear was to help aid them in their decision-making. You're to make a breastpiece for use in the making of decisions. Verse 15. The work of an artistic designer. Notice all along the way, God is using the artisans in their community. You're to make it in the same fashion as the ephod. You're to make it in gold, blue, purple, scarlet, fine twisted linen. And you go on and on. It's to have 12 stones, uh, each stone to represent one of the sons of Israel. 12 according to the number of their names. Go to verse 30. You are to put the Urim and the Thummim into the breastpiece of decision. And they are to be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Aaron is to bear the decision of the Israelites over his heart before the Lord continually. One of Aaron's roles as a priest was to take the burdens of the community before the Lord and to seek, God, seek God's will and his direction. The Urim and the Thummim, uh, they were sacred lots used to help the priest make decisions. The word Urim begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The word Thummim begins with the last letter. And so some scholars have determined that the lots uh, were probably restricted to giving either positive or negative responses to questions that were asked of them. Strengthening that likelihood is the fact that the Urim and the Thummim is best translated into English as curses and perfections. Meaning that if Urim dominated when the lots were cast, the answer would be no. But if the Thummim dominated when the lots were cast, the answer would be yes. So all these garments were given with great care and insight and purpose. There were robes, verses 31 to 35, and gold-plated clothing in 36 to 38, tunics and turbans and sashes. And if you're interested, in verses 40 to 43, the Lord even gives provision for the underwear that the priests were to be wearing and how they were to be dressed. It is very specific. But they represent this reality that the priests are to serve the Lord in purity, holiness, and fear. That they were to make intercession for the people, give decisions to the people uh, from what they determined to be God's revealed will. Now, friends, today 
followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, we have the revealed will of God in the scriptures. Amen? Amen. We no longer need priests to determine by stone or by lot what God's desire or will is. We can seek his will and desire and determine it for ourselves as his spirit guides and leads us in all truth through the reading, studying, and memorizing of his word. God's word contains his revealed will to his people. Still though, there may be a place in the church today or in churches today for the role of shepherd, elder, pastor, counselor, mentor, deacon, or other ministry position that God uses or God works through to help another person navigate difficult or unusually burdensome life's decisions. Did you ever just have to go and talk to somebody? Right? Somebody that could just help you make sense of things. A safe person to go to oftentimes is a mentor, someone we trust, an elder, a pastor. And a lot of times, hopefully, they're using God's word or helping to direct you in places that you could go to seek God's will through his word. And though all of us have access to the same or similar tools, not all of us always feel adequate in our ability to use those tools to determine God's will for specific decisions that come up in our lives. So we sometimes feel like we need a little bit more insight from someone. The priests of the early Israelites had their own set of tools that were a part of the tabernacle construction. And through the proper use of these tools, they were effectively able to perform their sacred duty. Some of that was in their clothing, but some of that we see in chapter 29 through 30. There's an altar of incense and an incense offering. There's atonement money that was to be taken up. There is a brazen laver in verses 17 to 21. Take a look, and we'll just read a few of those verses in chapter 30. The Lord spoke to Moses, you're to make a large bronze basin with a bronze stand for washing. And that was to be present among the people. Verse 19, Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and their feet from it. Verse 20, when they enter the tent of meeting, they must wash with water so that they do not die. This was serious. The brazen labor was important. Purity was to be a priority for anyone serving or coming into the presence of God. And the labor represents God's desire for his people to be holy and pure of heart. And not only in a practical way did maintaining cleanliness protect the physical health and well-being of the people, but it also protected and prioritized in a symbolic way the purity of the people's spiritual health. When I was thinking about the brazen labor this week, I could hear my mom in my mind saying, cleanliness is next to godliness. Some of you moms laugh because you've said that. Take a bath. I got kids that need to hear that. Get in the shower. We don't need the brazen labor today, church. Today we're washed by the water of the Spirit. We're the waters of baptism. And not just the water of the Spirit and the waters of baptism, but church, we can regularly be washed and watered through the reading, studying, and applying of God's Word in our daily lives. That's a beautiful truth. We can be cleansed as the truth washes over us and we study, read, and glean ways to live in this world through his word and through these waters god's keeping his temple our bodies our church pure and holy spaces that he's inhabiting there was anointing oil there was incense and then there were 
the builders. And we don't have too much more time left today, so I'm going to move quickly. But friends, I really want you to see this because we talked about the connection back into Genesis. And here it just rings so clearly through the text. Verse th- or chapter 31, the Lord spoke to Moses again. He's speaking again. See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God and skill and understanding and knowledge and all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work with gold, with silver, with bronze, with the cutting and setting stone, cutting wood to work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have also given him Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given ability to all the specialty skilled that they may make everything I've commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of testimony, the atonement lid that is on it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table with its utensils, the pure lampstands with its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar for burnt offering with its utensils, the large basin with its base, the woven garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments for his sons to minister as priest, the anointing oil, the sweet incense for the holy place. They will make all of these things just as I have commanded you. And that's amazing. Bezalel's name in Hebrew means in the shadow of God. And what are we talking about? The presence of God. And here he's using people whose names, listen to this, Aholiab. Guess what his name means in Hebrew? In the original Hebrew, it means the father is my tent. This is the care and design that even the specific people that he selected to build these things had names that represented his desire to be with his people. And when the work is completed in the second half of chapter 31, what were the people to do? What were they to do? I heard it. Rest. Oh, beautiful. And this is where we see it, friends, where where it begins to reveal itself. I give so much credit to scholar John Salehammer for this table. This is his work, not mine. But it's a beautiful representation of the literary artistry between Genesis 1 and 2 and between Exodus 25 to 31. Just look at this. The subject of the narrative is the establishment of God's good creation. The subject of the tabernacle narrative is the re-establishment of God's good creation. In creation, the heavens and the earth are the arena for the creation of divine and human fellowship. In the tabernacle, the tabernacle is the arena for the restoration of divine and human fellowship. In creation, God spirits the enabling power. In the tabernacle building, as we just saw, Exodus chapter 31, 3 and 6, God's spirit is enabling the power of the construction of the tabernacle. Structurally, the creation account consists of seven acts, each marked by divine speech. Here in the tabernacle design, there's seven acts, each marked by divine speech. God made Adam and Eve according to a specific pattern in the image of God. Moses is is fashioning the tabernacle according to the specific instructions that he's been given. It's a heavenly reality. It's divine. 
The Garden of Eden contained gold and jewels. And by the way, in those chapters in Genesis and the chapters in Tabernacle, the names for the stones that are used in Genesis 1 and 2 and the names of the stones that are used in Exodus 25 to 31, those are the only two places in the Old Testament scriptures where those specific names for stones are used. These are literary cues that are pointing us to the commonality between the two accounts. There is more. When the creation was complete, God inspected and evaluated all that he had done and he uttered a blessing. And when the tabernacle is complete, Moses is going to do the same thing and there will be a blessing. God rested on the seventh day at the end and here at the end of the building of the tabernacle, the people were to rest. And then next week, next week, what follows the creation of the tabernacle? Same thing that follows the creation account in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. What follows it? The fall. Sin. Yeah. And this fall resulted in Genesis, the breaking of the Adamic covenant. But the fall in, in Exodus results in the breaking of the Mosaic covenant that's been made here at Sinai. And just as God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness. So does he order in Exodus 28 the covering of the priest's nakedness. Tones, chimes, all directing and pointing us back to the new creation that God is establishing among his people. His presence with his people in the wilderness in a special way then and even now today. Friends, the tabernacle illustrates four different realities according to the scriptures. It represents the heavens where God dwells and from which he manifests himself. It represents the work of Christ. It represents the individual believer. And it represents the church today. And as I reflected on the text this week, I wanted to give us some takeaways. A few takeaways, tabernacle hope for the church today. One, friends, God desires to be with his people still. God's designs for his space, for his people to dwell with him, and he's designed it in a way that is pure. We can dwell with him in purity and righteousness. God restores and he resurrects spaces that are destroyed by his people. He builds them back up. He is the God of restoration and renewal. We're going to see that in this final movement of Exodus. God uses his people according to the gifts that he's given them to build up his temple space. And we worship. Church, we are worshiping as we perform and participate in the work that God has given us to do. And our choir is going to come forward. We're going to participate in a closing song together. And as they do, I wrote a little bit of a poem this week. I like poetry. Does anybody else in here like poetry? I enjoy some poetry this week. And this week, as I was reading and reflecting... Uh, the following few lines came to mind. Jesus is the temple. We, church, are the temple. I am the temple. God dwells in his holy temple. Let all of the earth keep silent before him. And to leave you with a cliffhanger. Verse 18 of Exodus 31. He gave Moses two tablets of testimony, 
when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, tablets of stone written by the very finger of God. And what happens next? We'll have to wait till next week to find out. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reality of your dwelling and abiding presence with us. Thank you for the care you took in establishing a way for us to relate to you specifically and uniquely in this world. Thank you for being with us today in a powerful way, in a way that we can experience your presence is with us. Let us not miss that, Lord. Each and every step of our journey, you are there. And we give you honor and we give you praise. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.